We're in the Gospel of John this morning, chapter 1, starting in verse 35. If you want to turn there, it'll be on the screen for you too. John chapter 1, verse 35, and I'm going to read through to verse 51. It basically says this, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by and he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Now Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, You are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. I love, I love in the Gospel of John these little editorial remarks because he's writing to this Greek-speaking audience and they don't know Aramaic or Hebrew. And, and so there's all these little editorial kind of what it means comments. You will be called Cephas which one translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, uh, Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good from, come from there? Nathanael asked. Bend Oregon. Can anything good come from there? Right? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. In whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus has power over time and space and the created world. He's not under it. And so Nathaniel just says, you're over it. You are the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the King. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. God, would you just turn off the autopilot in us right now? Would this be a thin moment? Would this be a moment in our lives that you would truly connect with us? We'd truly be attentive to the things that are unseen and not be distracted by the things that are seen. May this morning, in some weird way, be a moment in our life that changes us, that we will not forget. Father, we can't do that. And so we would just ask you, uh, as those who are desperate, those who are hungry, those who are needy, full of desire, uh, that you would act on our behalf and, and speak to us this morning. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, have you ever wondered um, how old 
Jesus' disciples were? Have you ever asked that question? How old were Jesus' disciples? It's a really interesting question, and it, it's got a fascinating answer to it, actually. You see, Jesus' disciples, um, the majority of them were probably teenagers, middle schoolers or, or high schoolers, which is kind of funny because when you see the Jesus movies, they're like in their 50s and bald, you know, and they're like older than Jesus in, in all the Jesus movies. But they were actually probably very young. Um, a couple things we can kind of turn to. Um, one, actually, just, just the whole rabbinical system of having disciples. Here's John the Baptist with his disciples, which would have been young, middle school, high school kids. Those disciples of John, which are following him, which was a part of the Jewish culture of that day, left him and go now follow Jesus. Okay, So just the whole system kind of tells you that they're younger. A um, couple other things here in Matthew, though. Um, Uh, Matthew chapter 10, we see a really interesting verse, uh, block of verses, 10, starting in verse 40. And so I put it on the screen. Actually, I'll read it because it's in a different translation to this one. But this is what it says. Now, I, I, I italicized kind of the pattern here because this is what's going on. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Um, I don't know that I've ever thrown Greek on the screen, but I want you to see the pattern here. So we'll just go through it. Ace um, anima prophetu, ace anima decao, which is disciple, or uh, Mathetu is from Mathetes, which is disciples, the bottom one. Um, top one is prophet, and then righteous is uh, Dekeu there. So ace anima Mathetu, which is the genitive of Mathetes, which is disciple. That's the bottom one. Okay? So you see the parallel structure there? So what Jesus is, let's leave that for a second. What Jesus is saying is, okay, if you receive a prophet because he's a prophet, or a righteous man because he's a righteous man, or one of these little ones here because he's my disciple, or because he's a disciple, then you will surely not use, lose your reward. Okay, now it's interesting. I'll read it for you in the NIV, which kind of is ambiguous, and so we kind of take it wrong. Here's how it sounds in the NIV. And if, you, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple... I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. So how do we normally take that verse is this. It's all about an empowering thing for us that if you give a cup of cold water to a little needy kid, then you truly are a disciple is kind of how we normally take that. And what Jesus is actually doing is he's got his followers and he's talking to the crowds of adults and he's saying, look, um, when you entertain a righteous person, you get a reward. When you entertain a, a prophet, he's someone of God's, you get a reward. And when you entertain one of these little ones because he's a disciple, you surely will not lose your reward. Another passage, uh, Peter comes up and they're, they're kind of hassling him about the temple tax. And he talks to Jesus and Jesus says, go, you know, pull it out of a fish's mouth. 
and it's four drachmas, and the temple tax is actually two drachmas. And, and when he pulls it out, um, he says, Peter, now take that for your and my tax. So he's got his disciples. They're not paying the temple tax, so they're getting hassled. And Jesus says, okay, we can take care of this. And he, he goes and kind of, you know, does this miraculous thing kind of with Peter. Peter gets it. It's, it's two temple taxes worth. And then Jesus says, take this for yours and mine, Peter. And, and what do you make of that? See, the, the idea here is that Peter is probably, because the temple tax, you had to be um, 18 or over. Kind of like our, our drinking age kind of a thing, you know. You had to be, you know, in the, in the 18 range, the 20 range or over, and you pay the temple tax. So Jesus is saying, I and you have to pay the temple tax. They don't have to pay. Here's our temple tax. So Peter is probably this, this kind of older, you know, a little bit further down the road guy with a lot of younger guys. And so one of the reasons that he's so assertive in the Gospels, you know, you, every page you turn, Peter's just leading out and he's assertive. And we always take that to be because he's a type A personality, but a, a lot of it's probably because he was also the oldest one of the disciples, or one of the oldest ones, certainly until maybe Matthew comes on the scene. And so that's probably one of the reasons why he's really assertive. So Jesus has this young group, Peter's a little bit older, of disciples. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because a disciple relationship with a rabbi or a teacher was one where you followed them in their footsteps, everywhere they went. It's an itinerant kind of a deal, right? And you learned from them their teachings. Each rabbi kind of had their own unique little kind of angle or spin or, or teachings. And, and you learned from him his way of doing things and, and how he followed the law and how he did his ceremonial washings. And, and you ate the way he ate and you kind of you know, did the things that he did, and you talked about the things that he talked about, and your little tribe had a culture to its own, and your identity was wrapped up in the little culture or community or team that you were a part of with this rabbi at the center that was the strong thing that anchored you. So here's the thing in this text. We begin to see how disciples of John peel off and start to follow Jesus. Side note, um, I love John, <laughs> John the Baptist, because the guy just is not about himself. Um, there's the Messiah. And some of his disciples and followers peel off, and he doesn't run after them or grasp them or try to control them or say, no, you're my identity. My glory comes in my little circle that's following me. You can't leave. My attendance will go down. Um, at Antioch, we don't ever want to get to the point where we are so driven by our tribe that we try to control and keep and tight fist things um, to the detriment of what the Holy Spirit is trying to do maybe in somebody's life. And so on numerous occasions, we put church planters of other churches in the pulpit here and put them in front of you and said, you know, here's a guy with a great vision doing a work of God. If you're feeling called to be a part of a new thing, go with him. We would love to send you. You don't have to stay here. Um, God's ultimate plan is not that everyone that comes through these doors stays the rest of their life in Antioch. 
And so we have to arm ourselves with that kind of an idea that it's not about us. Some of the best things that we have, we, we give away or we let go. And so John shows this. And so there's this thing going on where John lets them go and they leave and they begin to follow Jesus. And as I read this over and over, I thought, you know, what's explicit here is that they're following Jesus. If you read this text and said, what's explicit? What, what is just explained on the surface? It would be that these disciples peeled off of John and went and followed Jesus. And what fascinated me the more I read it was what was implicit and what was implied in that. Because these disciples whose identity was wrapped up in a sweet prophet that probably gave them a lot of credibility, had a great name, had a great culture and was unique and garnering a lot of attention or whatever, that they left that identity um, to, to go follow a guy and, and just made a break that way. It's Im implicit that they left something to follow someone. And the question I was asking myself all week is, do we really analyze it that way? I think we always talk about, here's Jesus, go follow him. And then we wonder why it doesn't really work or it doesn't really take in our own lives and other people's lives. Man, it just isn't, the glue isn't sticking. And I think it's because we never really deal with what's implicit, that when we go follow Christ, we leave something else. We leave a tribe. We leave a culture. We leave an identity. It's not easy. It has this cost to it. And so we have to reject that almost in order to go take on something new. So when I was talking about the cup of cold water passage, that followed on the heels of Jesus saying, if you don't love me more than your mother and your brothers and your sister, your family, your identity, what is at the core of who you are? If you don't love me more than that. So Jesus is speaking to this whole idea of, of you've got to be able to rip yourself away from something. If you're really going to come follow me, there's a cost associated. And so we see right up front here in the Gospel of John, Jesus comes on the scene and people are making choices to go and follow Jesus Christ and there's a cost to it and we can learn from that. Because I, I think our problem is cost. Uh, we do a great job at spending in America. We don't do a great job at paying the cost or the sacrifice part. Because we really like the idea of trying to find how we can hold on to both things. And Jesus never made that available to us. And he says, unless you look at the things that are so core to you and say, you know what, no matter how valuable these are, I have to push them away, my tribe, to go be with Jesus, then you can't have a part of me. thought about that? What was your cost that you paid? What did you push away? When was that? Do you know that season in your life where you paid the price and you remember it? Whether it was in college or in your 20s or your teens? A time maybe when you recommitted your life to Christ and you, you realized that there was things that you had to push away in order to follow Christ. Do you remember that season? We cannot become the church God wants us to become here in Bend, Oregon if we're not willing to pay the upfront ante to get into the game. 
there's things that we have to push away if we're going to put ourselves all in to follow Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing is what motivates that? Why would we be motivated to go all in and follow Christ? Now, it's interesting because it's a spectrum. It's all the way from one side all the way to another side um, on why we would be motivated to go follow Christ. And on this bad side over here, you have like Simon the Sorcerer in the book of Acts who sees some cool like spirit-filled mumbo-jumbo going on, and he's like, magic, sweet. Like, if I could just have some of that magic, man, I'd be really cool, and everybody would dig me, David Copperfield. Um, and he wants it. And the, you know, Peter just goes at him and blasts him. Judas. You know, Judas, we never really think about Judas. He's just Judas, you know. Label and kind of move him over. What was going on in Judas's heart? Judas was looking to gain something by this whole deal. And towards the end, he began to say to himself, you know what? Um, I signed on for this, and it's a dead-end job. And I was looking for a stepping stone into greatness to such a high degree that now I'm willing to manipulate the whole situation to try and buy my way out and turn this, leverage this into a good situation for myself. He had no uh, ability to handle the whole dead-end job. Last week we were talking about God gives us dead-end jobs in dead-end lives. And we have to have this hope that the things that really matter, the internal things, the heart, they pass through the fire, it says in Corinthians, and we get refined, and we, who we really are, goes and, and is with God, where he dwells in his home in heaven. And that the, the silly little things really someday will look silly because they don't pass through the fire. It's all a part of the dead end thing. And so we choose motives to be on board with what God's doing. Judas... Um, cared about himself too much. He'd come over like a notch or two, and you got these same disciples that go and follow Christ, and what were they always arguing about? They were arguing about who's greatest. So we paid this cost. You know, we got rid of our tribe, and we're not walking with John anymore. Now we're walking with you, Jesus. So there's got to be a payoff to this thing. You know, who's, gonna, who's really the best out of us, or who's going to be able to sit at your right hand? Who's the greatest, O King? Um, we want to be the one right underneath you. And I think in their weaker moments, they showed that, that the human heart's kind of a tricky thing. And there's motives in there that have to be purified and taken out of us. And even the disciples were in the middle here. And then comes this guy in this next little part that's all the way on this end of the spectrum. And that's Nathaniel. Nathaniel comes along and Jesus just right off the bat just looks at him and says, You know what? Here is a true Israelite. Verse 47 in whom there is nothing false. In other words, he's got a pure heart. His motives are pure. He, he's pure inside. It's not that um, here is a, a true Israelite, and he does the best job of ceremonially washing his hands before he eats a meal of anyone ever. Um, he tithes better than anyone who's ever tithed you know, before. Um, here is a true Israelite, Nathaniel, who gets to church literally 30 minutes early and stays 30 minutes late and doesn't even miss when he's sick. I mean, Jesus isn't going after the external behaviors here. He's saying, here's a true Israelite. What, what's constituted by a true Israelite is that in him, inside, there's nothing false. He's got an undivided heart. Purity of heart, said Kierkegaard, is to will one thing. 
And in this guy's heart, all he cares about is God's stuff, right? Not his own stuff. What am I going to get out of this? He's a true Israelite. I mean, I, it's fascinating to me when I look back at the last hundred years in America and the church, how we got so reversed into focusing on the externals. Like, uh, I just, it's interesting to me. I wish I could go back in time to some of these places and, you know, the Beatles. You know, it's the devil's music. I mean, pastors were spending their whole week fighting the Beatles because it's devil's music. Uh, and to me, that's just so perplexing. I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Maybe you, I mean, maybe it doesn't seem strange to you, but it does to me. Maybe you're not a John Lennon fan. But the idea here is what's in the heart. So I got two verses, and because the idea is here's this purity of heart, and what Jesus is going to go on and say, you're going to see me, and, and heaven is going to open up, and the angels of God are, are going to ascend and descend on me. You're going to see God. You're going to see, you're going to see right into the heavens this picture. So you've got a guy with a pure heart seeing God. And, and in uh, Matthew 5, verse 8, what does Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In Psalm 24, we see something very similar. It says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in God's holy presence? Because you've got to understand, God is radically pure. He's holy. Who can come in and be with that holiness, that purity? The one who has clean, hand, clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. The person that can come into the presence of God and see God, so to speak, is the one in whom there's nothing false, who's pure. Like, I get this. This is going to sound strange. I get this because... Um, I'm married to somebody who's like this, like a Nathaniel. Um, my wife is one of these rare people that just really has a pure heart. And so I watch her, and she gets her prayers answered. And she sees God's hand at work, and she gets to see all this cool stuff. And what I realize, as, you know, we've been married nine years now, is it's, it's a real simple formula. Um, if you want to see the glory of God... You have to have purity in you, because if you don't, what you're going to see is the discipline of God. Okay, so while I'm always getting, like, thrown around, and God's trying to refine me, okay, and take all this kind of rough stuff out of me, I, I get to see God, but it's a disciplined hand of God, because He's refining me. When, when I have kids, and one of them's doing something wrong, I train and discipline the one that just gets to come in and there's no discipline, no training, no rebuke, no redirection is the one who comes with just the pure heart and there's nothing false going on. So there's no, there's no like, <laughs> it's just a simple thing. The people who get to see God are the ones who are pure in heart because God is pure and he's holy. Do you get that? So here's, here's the thing. Um, Jesus says, you're going to see heaven open up and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He goes all the way back to Genesis. I'll just read it for you, okay? Uh, Genesis chapter 28. So you've got Jacob, and Jacob's running. Jacob's confused. Jacob's scared. Jacob's wondering, what the heck's going on? I'm, I'm this 
I've got this promise from God that I'm going to be like, you know, the father of many nations after my father here, and, and God's going to work through me this way, and here I am running for my life. I'm scared, and, and he just doesn't know up from down, and, and this is the dream he has, okay? He took a stone, he put it under his head, and he lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth. So, stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to the heavens. Okay? So, stairway to heaven. That's where Led Zeppelin got it. Devil's music. Um, so, we've, you know... Jacob's dreaming. He's got the stairway to heaven going, okay? And here, here's the fascinating thing. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord of the God of your father Abram. And he goes on. So angels are ascending and descending on this stairway to heaven. And Jacob's down here. So God creates this moment where the heavens kind of open up and he allows Jacob to connect with him and see God, so to speak. Now, the, the fascinating thing about this is the stairway to heaven kind of has gotten tweaked. And so you have spirituals like um, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. Have you ever heard that song? Maybe like two of you. But like we are climbing Jacob's ladder and stairway to heaven has this idea of we're supposed to climb up that stairway. And so here's the idea that comes into it is that we need to perform and we need to climb to earn God's affirmation. We all have in us this, this idea that we know we're good deep down inside, and by golly, if we just focus hard enough and figure out a little angle, even if the rest of our life is crap, this one little area, we work hard enough, we, we can do some good and kind of work our way up to God and like peek our head above the clouds, you know, hey God, and God's going to go, wow, sweet deal. You, you A plus, you got here, you worked hard, you climbed the ladder, and, and God is going to give us the smile of satisfaction, this affirmation, and we think that's what we really want, what we really need. Until um, life gets messy. I mean, the minute life gets messy, you lose your job, your spouse leaves you, you find out you have cancer, As soon as life knocks you around, you know what? The last thing you really want is God's affirmation. What's replaced is a, a realization that at the heart of it all, what you want is God's embrace. Um, this morning, I watched Fred Kent's son playing around in here. Fred was um, brings his boys early, and they watch the worship. It's a pretty cool thing. His sons are going to be crazy musical. Um, and his young son is playing and being happy, and the minute he gets hung up on the stage, like trapped, doesn't know how to go up, doesn't know how to go down, he just starts crying his eyes out. And Fred comes running, grabs his son, holds on to his son, right? When things get bad, we realize what really matters most. And I think these dead-end jobs that we're in and this dead-end life that we've got, when we get down into working and things are going well, we forget 
the reality of this whole thing. And we get absorbed in what we're doing and how cool it is. And man, I'm making progress and isn't God going to be happy with me or aren't people going to see how spiritual I'm becoming? And really, it's, it's just a house of cards. So Jesus tells this parable and he says, you know what, there's a wise guy um, and he went over here and he started to build what he was doing on this rock, this great foundation. This other guy, not so smart, comes over here and just starts throwing it together because he doesn't see the big picture and he ends up building on sand and because it's sand, it ends up just getting eroded. There's no foundation there and it was kind of a stupid, pointless thing of work and Jesus takes this passage from Genesis and he says, look, you are going to see something so amazing, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is only mentioned one other time in, in the Gospel of John, which is kind of crazy, you know. Um, here's this true Israelite. He only gets mentioned one other time just in a list of names, right? But he says, Nathaniel, guess what, man? It's not about what you're going to do. You're not going to get mentioned as many times as Peter. You know what? But that's not what it's about. You're going to get to see something that is so amazing. I, Jesus, am the ladder. I'm the bridge between heaven and earth. I'm the one that connects you. I'm the mediator. I'm here so that you can have this relationship with God. And through me, these things are going to come together, Nathaniel. And it's just going to rock your world because it's what it's all about. Because it's not about this works thing anymore or the law. It's about grace. And God has sent me to come to this world so that I could be the way in which they connect with him. And Nathaniel, you've got, you've got a pure heart. You get this. I told you one little thing and you immediately called me the son of God. So let me tell you something greater because I know you'll get this. You won't miss it and push it by and say, you know, how do I lead that ministry? Or when's Antioch going to be a thousand people? Or when do I get to go to Africa? Yeah, that's really cool, Jesus, about like we get to see God or, or now like it's all connected and we now get to enjoy the embrace. You know, that's cool. But Jesus, what about the affirmation part? What about the me part where I'm doing it all and I'm climbing the ladder and everyone sees it? You know, this is the other disciples, right? Because they've got mixed motives. And so they kind of see what God, uh, Jesus is saying, maybe. There's these other ideas in their head, not Nathaniel. Nathaniel heard one thing called Jesus the Son of God, and Jesus says, okay, I'll just cut right to the chase with you. You're going to see the greatest thing of all, and I know that you can understand how great this is, even though it sounds maybe so simple. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're going to see heaven open up, and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. We butcher this whole thing. And I don't know how or why, but, you know, the way we kind of look at salvation is this picture that's been around for like 50 years. And it's us and God. And it's this chasm, God, I don't know. God. And there's this chasm because of our sin. There's no ladder, there's no connection, we're not seeing the heavens opened up, the angels aren't going back and forth, because God's pure, we have sin, you can't mix anything other than white paint with white paint and keep it white, not even a drop of gray, 
And so God guards his holiness, even though he loves us, and says, you've got to be pure if you're going to see me, if you're going to mix with me, if this, this holiness I've got is going gonna, is gonna to be with you in a united kind of way. You, you can't be gray. Sin gets in the way of, of your being in relationship with me. So what goes in the middle in this picture? Um, you've seen, if you've seen it before, then here comes the cross. Isn't it wonderful? And we walk over, and then we're with God. Everything's fantastic. There's no more cost. What do we do with the rest of our life? I don't know. We'll worry about that when we get to heaven because I'm already past sin, and I'm just with God. What, what's left? I mean, seriously, symbolic things are huge, right? What happens when we walk across this bridge? What's implicit? What's explicit is we walked across it, we're here. What's implicit is it's behind us, right? It's behind us. What's crept into our thinking is this very strong sense of isn't it wonderful what God has done so that we, emphasis on us, can do this and put ourselves in the presence of God. Jesus got it going, um, but look what I can do now. And that's not what Jesus said. This is the picture in the scriptures. And you don't walk over that bridge and stand just face to face with God flippantly. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is always there. When we come face to face with God, Jesus is right there saying, that person's sin, I've got it. It's on me. They're cool. They can be here. This bridge, this mediator, we don't walk across this bridge. The bridge is a, a word or the stairway is a word that talks about connecting two things mediating two things, bringing two things together. But what Jesus does is he stands between us in this relationship that not by virtue of anything that I do or you do or we do together, this thing's protected, it's guarded, it's not based on me going up or down. Jesus has prepared the way, he is the way for us to come into contact with the heavens. And when we are purified and our hearts become undivided, that'll mean something to us. When we're no longer trying to prove that we're great and go after our own glory, that will mean something to us. When we've paid the cost and we realize there's nowhere we'd rather be than with God and knowing that, that there's an embrace there, that we're together, that we're united, when that's all that we care about, this matters more than anything else. So Jesus goes at something that, that Peter might have just heard and gone, oh, great little Bible teaching, let me set it aside. And he says it to Nathaniel. He says, Nathaniel, you can get me here. Here's the greatest thing that's coming. I'm going to die so that you can be with God. I'm going to be there covering you, making you white, purifying you, so that on my behalf you exist with God. And you know what, Nathaniel? This discipleship thing of following me, it's, it's only for a duration. It's got a dead end at the end of it. Your life, you're going to die. It's, it's a dead end life. What really matters is your relationship with God that comes through me. It's all that will pass through the fire. Nothing else will pass through the fire. And I can tell you get that, Nathaniel. 
You're going to see this happen in your day in front of your eyes, and it's going to be amazing. So this morning, we, um, we get to reflect. Let me just say this, like neutered of all like inflection. <laughs> we get to reflect on a simple truth with earth-shattering consequences. It's profound to who we are. There's other weeks where we can gather as a church and we can get hyper-emotional and we can get hyper-excited and we can get hyper-spiritual and we can get hyper-motivated and we can work ourselves into frenzies because we're human and that's what happens, right? And in doing that, here's the potential. We can never confront the fact that we still deep down harbor aspirations for our own glory and our own payoff. And if we step back and dispassionately look at it this morning and say, you know what? There's one smart decision here to walk all the way over to realize that our relationship with God is grounded on Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. And we, we, we start building our house on this rock that wise or smart never looks flashy, but if you're able to dispassionately look at that and reorient your life to build on that foundation, 10 years, 15, 20, when you're looking to say goodbye at the end of your life, it'll have made all the difference. And it's not just the pagans who built on sand. Judas built on sand. I think we can sometimes fool ourselves, can't we? So uh, with no emotion whatsoever, um, this is what Christ came to do. And it matters. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I'm tired of um, religious games. I'm tired of a herd mentality where we just follow the latest fads or trends, even if it's Christian trends. I'm tired of stoking the fires of emotion but missing the impact of logic or the scriptures or what you're trying to communicate to us or what you've done or what you're doing. Father, I'm tired of going down um, wrong paths. I'm tired of I'm tired of things that just don't have eternal um, consequences to them. And I would just pray that if it comes to it, that this church would be a lot like Jesus and his followers, that together as a community, um, we would choose it no matter what the cost. Not because it's big, not because it's popular, not because it's, it plays on emotions, but because we're willing to commit all 
are willing to go all in to follow Christ for what is spiritually promised our relationship with you and embrace you. Um, just give us a an aversion to anything, no matter what it looks like, what the promise is, that doesn't deal with the heart of the matter. Just that we would see it and we'd push it away. Father, give us a hunger for all things pure and noble. And I just pray that we'd be able to pour ourselves out like drink offerings, like Paul said. And, and that we'd be able to pour ourselves out to be found together with you doing your work. Not because we're great, but because that's the only, that's the only place we'd want to be. And that the people around us would lift us up and encourage us. And we'd be able to encourage them. And that this would truly become a family or a team its own tribe with its own values and we wouldn't care about the other things of this world. Father, we pray that in Christ's name. Breathe into those body parts and then you have a body. And I, I, you know, at the time, I remember we were planting the church and I was like, man, there's a real application here to church. It's not just about getting a bunch of people in the room and drawing a circle around it and saying, church! Because we have a lot of body parts. But these parts, these people, you and the person sitting next to you, you have to be connected and put into relationship and, and be tied together. And then the Holy Spirit needs to, to be here breathing life into this thing. And then we have a body and a church. But not only that, and, and kind of the way it goes with what I'm talking about here with John the Baptist, John the Baptist is saying, not only am I a part of the body, I'm willing to do my part. I'm willing to submit to the whole and do my little part that contributes to the whole. It says in Ephesians 4 that this whole thing grows together, uh, grows up in love underneath Christ as every ligament and thing just kind of connects and, and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Um, brothers and sisters, you have a dead-end job that God has for you. He's trying to sign you up today um, to a wonderful piece of his plan that is finite. But you get to be a part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is Christ's presence right now on this earth living out this kingdom call the church of God is the body of Christ that lives out Christ's ministry to the poor, to the oppressed, to the spiritually dry that are desperately in need of hearing from God. We are getting to live out this call and be a part of this story. God has a dead-end job for you in your dead-end life, but it's a part of his grand story, and it's an, it's an amazing, wonderful, marvelous thing, and we need to get on board. And the reason we don't get on board is the last point. <clears throat> the reason we don't get on board is because we're all asking that question, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? If God would just tell me what his will is for my life, then I would do my part, and I would do it gladly and live it out. But as it is, I've been, I've been wandering around for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and I don't know what God's will is for my life. And as soon as he lets me know, then I'll do it. Listen to what John says here, which blows my mind. This was the like, you know, 
I used to be a radical skeptic, and I would read in this, and I'd be like, what's going on here? Jesus coming from God, being God, and, you know, and I, I would just, everything was skeptically minded. But what I love about the Gospels is how human and real it is. So here's the, the guy setting the table for the cook who's related to Jesus, six months older, and they're like cousins. They've grown up together. And so the story, the good Christian way, should be, right? I mean, they were talking about this, and they're like 10. Hey, Jesus, how about I really, like, call some people out when I'm going, and then you can come along, and you can call them, you know, you fry them. And, and it should be really, you know, you, you kind of like the good Christian Sunday school story is that this is all mapped out, right? Listen to what John says in verse 31, uh, starting verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen this, and now I testify to it. What blows my mind is that John is being obedient to God in a fog. In a fog. He doesn't have complete, clear understanding. He's just accepting this call in a fog and saying, I'll go live out, put on animal clothes, eat locusts, preach at everybody, not have any friends. I'll do all that, even though I don't know where it's going to connect. I don't know who I'm handing the baton off to. I don't have absolute certainty with that. Yet he does his part without complete clarity because obedience precedes understanding. Obedience precedes clarity. And so he obeys and does what he knows, and then one day he gets the clarity and he's able to hand off that baton. Why does that matter? Because you know what? It is very human that you're sitting there today going, I don't know the baton handoff. I don't know the end of the story. I don't know why God created me, what the, what the unique little purpose is he has for my life. I can't see it clearly, so I'm stuck. And then we wait, and we ask, and we want, and we desire. And inside us, we even have feelings of insecurity and lack of value because I don't know how I fit in. And the deal here is we need to do what we know even when we have things that we don't know. That's what's called living by faith. Living by faith is walking forward and doing what you know, even though you have questions that remain. Okay, so here's, here's the thing. Um, there's a lot of things you know you're supposed to be doing. And as you do those, the story will unfold. I um, had a time after we got married, a, a great family friend that married Tam and I uh, moved to Portland. And uh, something was a little off in the relationship, and, and I was confused about some things. And so about a year into our marriage, and this friend is in Portland, um, I finally decided that the biblical thing to do was to fly up and talk to him directly. So Tam and I agreed, and we put a, a ticket to Portland on a credit card because we didn't have the money. And I called him up, and I just said, hey, if I fly in on Friday, can you pick me up? I'll fly back out on Saturday. I just want to hang. Um, he said, sure. You know, and so we put this credit, uh, ticket on a credit card. I flew up on a Friday. We hung out that night, and I just said, hey, I, got, I just got some questions. I don't understand some things. Come to find out, it's just a misunderstanding on my part. Um, great friend. He's done tons for me. Um, 
and loves my wife and I, and I flew back on Saturday. That friend was the person who got me to bend and connected me with the job that got me up here. He was the person that then launched us into a church plant, put together the church plant council of Jeff Vanderselt, Rick McKinley, and, and uh, Bill Clem, who initially gave advice and spoke into this church. Um, and so this week I was in Baltimore with some World Relief Next stuff, and I, it was just amazing. And maybe next week we'll share some of it. But I, on the plane I was retracing all the cool things that God has done, and, and here's what I realized. If I hadn't have obeyed Scripture and gone and talked to this person directly, I would have never got to bend. Antioch Church would have never been planted. This world relief next thing that I think has the power to change, I mean, those things would have never happened. So John shows us that even in the midst of confusion and lack of clarity with lots of questions, you do what you know. You obey God and trust that out of this human stuff you're doing, something's going to flower that's going to be remarkable. And so you, you've got to forgive somebody. You need to go talk to somebody. You need to take serious your call to be a dad or to be a, 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 a wife or a mother. You've got to take serious your call to be a Christian that God has gifted you to serve in this church. You're to have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. You already know those things. And if you don't know the whole end story, that's okay because you know these pieces. And yeah, it's foggy and there's a lot of questions, but you do what you know. The righteous will live by faith. Why? Because obedience precedes understanding. The righteous will live by faith. Why? Because we trust that out of what we do, God can take those loaves of bread and multiply them out and do something remarkable with our very human, very natural, very whatever lives and actions and motives and everything else. You are a human, but God has limited himself and chosen to build on what we do. You get to be a part of the body of Christ with your dead-end job and work in this world to the glory of God. And it's exciting and it's worth it because you, every single one of you, me included, us, we get to help change the world. Father, uh, we... We come every week, and if we don't commit this to you, it's just in vain. If, if the builder doesn't commit and trust and involve you in what he does, the builder labors in vain. And we don't want this just to be another community, human thing. We want it to be divinely inspired. We want your presence to be here. We want this, there to be life in this church to where when people come in, they look around and say, man, there's something different here. <sighs> this is what I've been looking for my whole life. I've been made to be a part of this team and, and I've been searching for it and here's where I need to be with these people doing my part helping them change the world and Father, unless you are part of that it will not happen human effort, our works are nothing if you're not a part of this and so we just commit this church to you I commit the college to you commit World Relief Next to you in missions and local things Father, all of this, if it's not being done to your glory, is a waste of time. Please, just guide us, correct us when we need to be corrected, and uh, just give us the joy that comes from knowing that what we're doing truly is what you'd have us do. That we really are bringing a smile to your face because we're trying to do our part knowing that you're going to work through us. In Christ's name.